0: Welcome back to Arena On Air. This week, Bree sat down with some pretty incredible guests, all of which are working on Indecent, playing now at Arena Stage. We got an insight into the creative side of things by speaking with director Eric Rosen and Alexander Savronsky, music direction and original composition. Then we hear from the performer's perspective as actors Ben Cherry, Susan Linsky, and Marin Shah join us. Enjoy! Well, thank you so much for being here. If you could just tell us a little bit about your connection to Indecent, um, how you sort of came about working on this project um, and the impact it's had on you so far, we could start there.
1: I I have a probably 20-something year long history with the play that Indecent is about. Indecent is about a play called God of Vengeance, which was written in 1906 and premiered on Broadway for a very short run in 1923. And it's famous in both Jewish uh, uh, Jewish theater history and in LGBT theater history because it was the first lesbian kiss on Broadway. And the panic that resulted after its premiere uh, resulted in censorship laws that ruled what writers could and couldn't say in New York commercial theater for 30-something years. So it both was a landmark uh, historical event. And what was interesting to me is that it had existed in Yiddish, in, in the Yiddish theater, for 17 years without incident, before it was translated to English and became uh, a, a sort of a, a national crisis among um, uh, Jewish intellectuals and among uh, uh, American theater artists. Um, I was aware of this play from way back in school, and knew that uh, Paula Vogel, the playwright, and Rebecca Teichman, the original director, had been developing it for this this uh, had been commissioned in developing this particular play. So I've known about it for years, um, but. It, hadn't read it or didn't hadn't seen it until i saw it on broadway two summer before last and uh it felt to me as though i was born to work on this project <laughs> that all the things i'm interested in and passionate about in terms of the theater itself how the theater works what the theater does what it means the history of of jewish life of the last century and the history of lgbt lives of the last century are uh you could trace a line to, through everything I've ever done and touch one of those objects. Um, so it's been really important to me to, to, uh, to both do it and to, and to make it great.
0: Do you have any insights, ideas, or I guess theories on why when it was produced in Europe in Yiddish, there didn't seem to be any problems, but then when it came to the United States, um, you mentioned it wasn't just non-Jewish intellectuals. It was Jewish intellectuals. It kind of across the board in the U.S. all of a sudden everything sort of bubbled up.
1: If current history is any guide, times change fast. And uh, in fact, Yiddish intellectual life, Jewish intellectual life in Europe from 1906 uh, well into the 20s was uh, uh, at its peak. It sort of the, the smartest, most interesting, interesting things being said Uh, were being said by European artists, and Jewish artists were among those artists. And uh, there were very daring things happening across the Yiddish theater uh, that people didn't blink at, because it was a revolutionary time. It felt like the headiest, most exciting time to be alive. And by the 20s in America, there was an immigration crisis. There was uh, a real anxiety about Eastern European Jews flooding into the country, even among American Jews uh, who had been born here. And the idea of bringing a radical vision of moral challenges to the established order in the form of Eastern European or Central European Jewish immigrants telling stories on stage changed everything. And, um, you know, if you think back in our country, what it felt like 10 years ago to be in America uh, and thinking about complicated issues about race and gender and sexual identity uh, and what it feels like right now, it's, It's a different world. In a way, it gives this play a lot of urgency. It reminds us that history is not a teleological model of we're always moving forward towards uh, towards enlightenment, but rather we're constantly circling back and that the times in history in which we've gone from extremely expansive visions of what the the mind can be and do to extremely restricted notions of what can be said and what can't, um, I've seen it at least three times in my lifetime uh, and I'm not that old.
0: And then Alex.
2: I guess the oldest story I was, I was asked to. Um, (laughs) It's uh, it's a beautiful piece that I was familiar with, that I had seen um, previously. And um, a little bit about my background, in addition to being a uh, composer, music director, I'm also an actor and a a musician. My first instrument is uh, violin. And I grew up in a Jewish household as a classical violinist and was exposed to a lot of klezmer and kind of was... it's always been a part of my um, musical palette but I never had a production that afforded me the opportunity to write such and to be able to delve into such a a deep pool of that type of music so um, when the chance came I was very excited to do so Um, but the production itself that we're working on and my role in it is fairly unique in the sense that we are starting. We're, we're able to work away. Uh, the process of it is able to happen in a way that other productions um, won't be able to, in the sense that as we're creating organically the production, the music is being created organically as well to fit the needs of those moments, of those transitions, or those whatever whatever we're putting music to, and the original Broadway company had written a beautiful score and now that score is attached to the play in a way that future productions are using that score. And we were able to negotiate a situation that allows us to be able to bring a different approach to it. So to be able to come in with ideas that can be morphable to our production and unique to our production and unique to Eric's vision of the show has been a a really interesting process and one that I don't know if any other productions of the play can experience in the same way.
0: And what exactly do you mean by morph? So is the full score from the original production still in place and there is additional music on top of it? Are you rearranging the original score? Are you pulling pieces from the original score and placing them in different spaces? Like, how does that, how does that change? What do you mean when you say morphing?
2: The way the script is is sort of similar to looking at a Shakespeare play in the sense that when you're looking at the play, uh, there are sections of text that are song works that are now part of the show that you that you do as part of text. And those songs that are in place in Indecent come along with the show. And those are all popular music or traditional Jewish music or klezmer music that the original production arranged their own uh, orchestrations for those songs. And we are using the same songs because they are written into the script as part of the text, but we are making the arrangements and the interpretations of those songs uniquely ours. And as far as the rest of the music in the show, we are starting with, uh, with what we have in the room as opposed to being um, tied to any pre existing work that might influence style or mood or tone of any specific uh, moment in the play. So in the same way uh, other plays that I've worked on, any other play that I've worked on, has the freedom to be discovered anew by every new production, so are we able to do with this production, which is uh, just happens to be a, a unique way that this, pro- that this play will
1: be done in the future. I should say about that, that the most exciting thing to me is um, to be able to go to this uh, script that is so beautiful and try to forget what the Broadway production was like. Rebecca Teichman won the Tony for it. It was a beautiful production. uh, And and every every impulse in this play has Rebecca's uh, imprint on it. But that's her intellectual property. And for me as a director, I generally work more often on new plays or things that I can make up in the room with other people so to have the chance to uh, make our own vision and our own musical vocabulary, our own dance vocabulary uh, so that it is not a copy of what someone else has done but a new interpretation of what exists on the page is, I think what I was saying is, is we're probably the only company that will get to do that um, because it will now, tr- in, in future productions, and. Even in other current productions, it's more like doing a musical now in which you find in which part of the text is the notes on the page um, is the score, but we don't have that score. So we're kind of feeling around in the dark, trying to find it ourselves, which to me is really organic and exciting and original. It is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I can only
0: imagine. <laughs> Building something from the ground up that sort of already existed before. Um, so... You guys have touched a little bit on what the process has been like in the rehearsal room as far as the music is concerned. What about the rest of it? So you guys have been here for about two weeks now, I think. How has that been? Two weeks and two days if you're counting. Right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what has, what, when you walk into, Eric, a rehearsal space... Um, What kind of environment are you hoping to create for the actors and the artists and the creatives that are in that room?
1: I I think the environment that I try to create in a room is uh, a little bit of structured chaos, uh, hopefully a lot of generosity of spirits that people feel able to bring their best selves and their best creativity to the the event, Um, hopefully some strong uh, intellectual and theoretical guidance for the why of what we're doing, Um, and... Than playfulness, right? Because if you're going to make something up with a group of people you don't know very well, in a city in which you don't live, with artists you've never worked with before, as Alex and I haven't worked together before, you've got to very quickly establish rules, norms, and the freedom to do whatever happens within within inside those rules and norms, right? So it's sort of like I draw the boundary of the cage of what the play can and can't be. And, uh, and then everyone's sort of contributing what they can, either as actors, as dancers, as singers, as musicians, as thinkers. And my goal is therefore, very quickly, this company can create a cohesion, a self-reliance, an interdependence, uh, and uh, a, a capacity to make a very complicated play in a very short amount of time. And that's my th- I think probably that's ultimately my job as a director and also to be kind of chief psychologist of uh, of the room <laughs> when people get nervous. It's a
2: really wonderful thing to be able to discover a play that in some respects you may think you know from, the scrac- from scratch with a group of people that are all on the same page. Um, uh, we're all, I think... Definitely more of us in the room that I think are familiar with the play that're familiar with the play in some iteration before walking in the door, but we all had to put all that outside the door and walk in and kind of start from the same place and that 's been I think a really lovely thing to do and it 's something that i've I do frequently with a lot of classical work, but more rarely get a chance to do with contemporary work um, and I think that's been like a really fun combination of the two um skill sets that I, or the, the two uh, experiences that I have in the theater, which is primarily either as a classical, a person that does a lot of Shakespeare, and classical works, and then uh, a little bit of the contemporary world. So this kind of blends a bit of those experiences for me in the sense that, you know, when, I, when I've worked on a lot of classical plays, a frequent argument, a frequent concern that comes up is, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm playing Hamlet. I don't want my to be or not to be to sound like every other to be or not to be. So you're standing on the shoulders of giants that came before you. And although you want to have your own unique voice, there are certain things that make the text clear or make the story clear that just work, that are, have become for lack of a better term, a tradition for better or for worse. And sometimes our job as theater artists becomes not only to create a new from the page but also to build on the shoulders of what's come before us. And this play has very little history. You know, It's a very new play, but the one major production it's had was one that it's hard to forget about. So it feels like that same type of or a, no, I won't say the same type of weight but there is certainly uh, you know a, a, a ghost in the corner so to speak <laughs> You know, and it's been a really interesting experience to try to have to okay let's forget about that what does the text say and that's just something that I think that all artists that are interested in creating good work you know your touchstone becomes the text and luckily with this play we have a really strong text and although Re- as Eric said her, her fingerprints are on the uh, Rebecca's fingerprints are on the the, 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 the play itself of course because it's her work and it was created uh, in this beautiful way but the script itself is actually fairly open to interpretation. there's not a tremendous amount of extra stuff that would influence a director's vision or limit what they can do so there's a lot of a lot more openness and a lot more freedom than I think audiences might expect and musically speaking, the music exists to support not only the, the play itself, but also the players in the play, because the whole construct of the play is that the, we're presenting this whole evening, this whole story is being presented by this troupe, as it's called in the, in the cast list, the dead troupe. And as part of that troupe are all the actors, the stage manager, and these musicians. So it's not um, just happens to have a live band on stage. Musicians are part of this storytelling as an active participant, not just as a passive uh, contributor. So that's been an interesting uh, line to, to to balance on because on one hand you need really competent professional musicians and on the other hand you need really competent professional actors mm-hmm. and you need to, people to be able to straddle those two worlds uh, and also create organically as we're making the music in the moment and kind of working off each other and saying, oh, I'm going to take the lead on this moment, you follow me. Or you take the lead on this moment and I'll follow you. As Eric and I kind of trade back and forth um, that that kind of leadership role on the various moments in the play, the rest of the cast and the rest of the team is kind of following along as we shift, and it's been really um, a really beautiful experience to be able to find
1: when am I listening and when am I when am I leading. You know, it's interesting to me that this play is about Jewish cultural life of the 20th century, and also about the history of the representation of of sexuality, particularly homosexuality. In the theater, in, in the first half of the 20th century, and um, and what is at its heart, and what I think why why I think God of Vengeance was so important historically and why it endures is there's this one scene in which two girls, uh, an older woman and a younger woman, are falling in love and they go into the rain and they and they dance in the rain in their underclothes, and uh, and it's the most poignant and beautiful scene in God of Vengeance. And it is the thing that's at stake in the play is uh, uh, is the kind of imprint of this one theatrical image and I love that it is actually true in theater history that that one scene that that one impulse has endured for now one hundred um, and seventeen years and that that impulse is in its at, at its heart striking at what sexual identity means on stage, what love means on stage, what bodies in the st- in a state of pleasure mean on stage, um, and uh, and what Jewish bodies that are not heterosexual having pleasure on stage, <laughs> what that all means in this one 15-second event uh, is to me a testament to the urgency and need for theater as an art form that every now and then We latch onto a single image, the family standing around the grave uh, Mm -hmm. in in Death of a Salesman, uh, uh, the uh, Medea's rise um, at the the end of Medea, certain images that are so potent for different reasons that they cut through time and space and and live with us forever. Um, And what I love most about Indecent is that that's a lesbian thing, right? That that's a lesbian playwright creating a lesbian image that is based in real history and that captures and and saves a history that otherwise would be hidden and destroyed and and that to me is part of the moral urgency of doing theater especially right now is to rescue those images and to remind ourselves that we're not the first people to ever feel this way, we're not the first uh, people to uh, uh, have sexual freedom, we're not the first people to live openly, uh, to live our lives openly as uh, as uh, as queer people Um, but that has, we've been through many cycles in in our in our culture in which we've been free and not free it's also a bit of a warning i think you know i'm I'm married and have a baby and we think you know that that, uh you know that history won't touch us just the other day i was looking through some papers we just uh left kansas city rep as the artistic director moved to new york and was looking at our, our mortgage that we sold our house and the notary had when we signed our mortgage Uh, had crossed out, Uh, married—we were married in 2012, we bought our house in 2013—the notary had gone back and crossed out, married, and wrote uh, 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 two single persons next to our names because in Missouri it wasn't legal in 2013 for two men to be a married couple owning property, and if she hadn't written that, our mortgage wouldn't have been valid. And to me, it was just this. When it happened in 2013, I didn't think about it, but now I think I believe that my marriage rights are inviolable, and five years ago they were violated. Yeah, by the state, and that's that's to me was a, a sort of a shaking wake up call that reminding ourselves that sexual identity and that sexual expression is. Historical and goes back centuries and not just minutes and not just weeks and not just a few years gives us property to stand on as we make moral claims about our own right to self-determination and right to self-expression.
0: It seems like, you know, that moment between the two women is such a, you know, you're out in the rain. You're kissing the person that you love in the rain. That is something we all grow up thinking. That's the most romantic thing we could ever do, and it's such a everybody... Can relate to that yeah. in a way, and it's such a nice, it's such a great f- picture, and image that's just so.
1: And if you were going to ask me, what is the play about? It's about the expression of that as an image of love that everyone can relate to. That people will line up in the wings to watch every night because it's such an expression of romance and pure love. That when it gets expressed in a culture that is hostile to it, becomes just about sex, just about dirtiness, just about um, indecency. And, uh, and that's the, the, the moral crisis of the play, is whether or not that scene can exist inside the broad production of God of Vengeance of 1923. Uh, and Lemel says something where he says, yeah, you took out the love between those girls, now it's just about sex. Uh, I love that line, because it's, um, it's nothing to do about their sexuality. It has everything to do about what it means uh, uh, to have the right to, to love and express that love. There's another line where a woman says, I'll never have the chance... Uh, on stage again to tell the woman that I love that I love her on stage Uh, and that one always pops out at me because I think Paula is saying that there are almost no chances for a lesbian actress Mm. to perform her real sexual identity as a character in a play on stage and to think that that was actually true and possible between 1906 and 1923 and then was impossible from 1923 uh, well into the 60s is um pretty? It's it's scary.
3: I'm Susan Linsky. I play Helena and a member of the Greater Ensemble.
4: I'm Marin Shaw and I play uh, Nellie Friedman. I'm one of the actor musicians.
5: My name is Ben Cherry, I play Lemel.
0: So I'm curious, were the three of you familiar with the piece Indecent before, I know you were Ben, um, but before you started working on it for this production, um, had you seen it, had you read it, was this brand, brand new work for you or not?
4: I had seen it in New York on Broadway, um, and I loved it. And I sat there and said, I'm going to be in that show. (laughs) So, yes, I was familiar with it. And then I've read it, obviously, multiple times.
3: I was at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and they they bring together artists from all over the campus to look at the season for next year. Uh, And they were considering Indecent for their play season, and I read it there. thought oh my god I love this play I love this play (laughs) Um, and then uh, so I had read the play out in Oregon for the first time and then Victor called to see if I would come in and read for it here I was really excited I thought the play was exceptionally beautiful
5: I didn't know it was coming to Broadway Um, until I got the call for the audition. And when I read the script for the first time, it was, I I knew by how difficult it was to read, because it is a difficult play to read because of the uh, projections and all the explanations and the the different languages. Um, It it was like a puzzle that that I wanted to figure out. It was a a very eye-opening experience, and I knew... I wanted it so badly, and so I worked my butt <laughs> off because <laughs> I auditioned to understudy all of the men, um, on Broadway, and they gave me uh, like two scenes of almost each track of each track. So it was a, a stack of sides. It was a lot, and they put you through the they put me through the ringer. I went in three times. Um... And we did every single one of the sides multiple <laughs> times, but I love the piece so very, very much. Paula Vogel is my hero.
0: Um, so we just came from the designer run. Um, can you talk a little bit more about you're saying reading it is a is a little can be a little complicated, a little confusing because of all those pieces. Can you talk a little bit more about how because Eric was essentially calling out titles which I assume might be projected onto walls and how how that aspect sort of weaves its way through the story and how it enhances the story.
5: Well besides uh, lighting and costumes which is a given um, that they exist in a theater piece um, there are two more characters in this piece and one is the music and two is the, uh, the on the back wall we get the um, projections of time place and sometimes who characters are and what they're doing um, it has its own language uh, which she did, does beautifully Paula Vogel mm-hmm. wrote them beautifully um, they help the audience to know what country we're in uh, what character because people play over there are over 40 characters that the ensemble plays in this piece Um So it it kind of becomes a guide for them a little bit through the uh, complicated nature of the storytelling.
3: And she also helps the audience understand what language is being spoken. Because when you're speaking your home language, you don't have an accent. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you're speaking in German, or sometimes you're speaking in Yiddish, or sometimes you're speaking in English, but maybe that's not your first language. So then you have a dialect. And so she's also guiding the audience in terms of um, the language.
4: Yeah, and I think that's that's something working with Alexander, who I know you spoke to, about that he's been trying to do with the music as well, is kind of like follow that roadmap of how the play moves from um, Europe um, to America and how that... um, how that is uh, represented in the music that we're playing. So we kind of go from like traditional klezmer music and then we throw in, there's bits that get more like American jazzy and American musical theater um, uh, and finding that like through line through all of that, um, which has been fun to kind of make in the room with him.
0: The dialects that you guys speak throughout the production, I found really, really interesting, especially because it seems like Lemel constantly has an accent. Like, you never speak in the American English that we hear to represent when people are in their comfortable language space. Correct. Um, so Lemel is... Do, do you have any insights into... I mean, wh- I mean, obviously, he is the, the ultimate person displaced from where he's from, I assume is the base for that. But is there maybe another layer mm-hmm. to why that is?
5: Paula, um... Wanted him to be accented through the entire piece because he is always the outsider, even when he's with his own people. He is from the shtetl; they are are more progressive people. They are, you know, still in a quiet city, but you know, citified, and he's a country bumpkin in a way. Um, and she, I remember her uh, saying that what she wanted was to always feel like he was other he was other than the people around him. I love that we we sort of see the show through this, this uh, person who maybe is looked down upon by other characters because of the way he speaks and because he's not modern and doesn't understand things that they do. I think he has a pure, pure heart, and that's why she placed that trust in him, why Paula placed the trust of of holding the, the heart of the, the love of the God of Vengeance in him, in that character. And I think that accent just is, adds to that magic.
0: How do you sort of come to that as an actor and a musician? The idea that the music adds an additional dimension to the production, but having the musicians as characters in, an, in their own right on stage with the rest of the cast
4: Right, well, I think it's, like, kind of represents, like, a uh, more, like, what theater was it at that time, too, than um, even today there's, well, I think that there's become, like, when in traditional uh, American musical theater, there's this separation between, like, the actors and the singers, and then, like, the musicians in the pit, and now we're kind of coming back around to that where we have, like, actor musicians with, um you know, shows like Once and things like that. Um, But I think that's actually kind of reverting back to the way it was originally, where, like, the music was made to... with as the play was being written as well. Um, So it was more of, like, a collaboration. So that's kind of, like, starting from scratch with um, most of the music in this show, too. That's what we're doing again. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we're actors first, and then we embody these characters that are also musicians and then we're also musicians um so it's layered but it's kind of also all there in one person to begin with.
0: Susan can you talk a little bit about the role and what it means to be telling this particular story on stage?
3: I feel incredibly just moved by the relationship and the example like a lighthouse. Is one of the lines from the show, like these two girls, like a lighthouse. That is a beacon I will remember. And for me, love is love is love. And to be able to stand in a public place and be able to say that with all of me, it means a lot to me. I'm incredibly grateful for the chance to get to do that and to live that. Thank you, Paula Vogel. <laughs> <laughs> And we're living in a time where there are still harrowing examples of anti-Semitism. And, you know, people are walking into synagogues with guns or yelling Heil Hitler in a production in Baltimore at a theater.
5: A Fiddler on the, a roof.
3: Fiddler on the roof. And so, I mean, I wish I could say the play weren't relevant, <laughs> but it's exceptionally relevant. And the times that we live in continue to underscore why and within that there's the triumph of story and history and the life force that is the theater, the act of telling your story and I think that in these times it reinforces the relevancy of the power of that it just resonates it's interesting, there's a moment in the play where, you know, they're they've been contained in the ghetto They've been pushed into an attic. And they're allowed to sing songs, and they're allowed to do dances six nights a week, but they're not allowed to do theater. And it's because it's so incredibly powerful. And so it just echoes back on how important this play is, and the doing of it.
5: It's like storytelling, had to be stopped.
3: Right, Mm -hmm. created too many thoughts and...
5: Too many thoughts and too many feelings, and then, I don't know, knowledge is power. <laughs> and I guess they might take over. I don't. And
3: a collective experience where you are together in an audience, sharing a laugh or sharing a new thought—it's pretty powerful. That's it's a great company of people to work with. To walk in in the room every day and know that you're doing something that's really important and that you're doing it together.
5: Yeah, and I also want to say it's also there's lots of laughs. <laughs>, <laughs>
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Arena On Air featuring artists from Indecent. We hope you make it out to see Indecent at Arena Stage. It's running here until December 30th.